Um, so we are going to talk about the English Reformation today. Um, the English Reformation, um, for a number of different reasons, was kind of separated from how the Reformation went in, on um, the rest of the, the continental uh, portion of Europe. Um, in Germany, um, economics played a small role in what happened there, right? So the, the selling of indulgences um, was theologically bad, but one of the things that really kind of tipped that, that over was that it was economically bad for the peasants in Germany. So um, we don't want to make it seem like it was just uh, an incredibly pious doctrinal thing from the very beginning. Um, there was practical matters involved here as well. Uh, people could quite clearly take a lot of doctrinal error for a number of, of years, as they did. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was, was an error on a number of different things throughout the years. Um, but once the German people started to see that the Bible didn't allow them to, like, this was all kind of a fake thing in order to make money, that kind of tipped the scale. So there was an economics played a role, but theology really did back all of it. Um, in Switzerland, uh, it was a little bit different. Switzerland and then leaking over, it didn't really leak into France very much, but um, the middle portions of, of the German states getting down into Switzerland, um, those were primarily theological issues. So as we talked about Zwingli, we noted that while Luther had these sort of emotional upheavals and emotional responses to things um, that he then turned to Scripture for, Zwingli was very much just reading Scripture and kind of responding to what he, he read in Scripture, and um, that, that led to their Reformation. In England, it was almost completely and wholly different. Uh, theology had to play a catching-up role. Um, basically, it was politics all the way down, and and even those who wanted Reformation in England were going to use the politics to get what they wanted. Um, but it was, it, was pretty much, it was pretty much just politics that led to the Reformation in England uh, from the very beginning. Which is interesting because England is the place where the Reformation would take hold sort of the firmest. Um, and uh, it, would, it would kind of be um, strongest there in the end. But that wasn't how it began. Um, the Reformation in England, obviously... Um, revolves around which king? Does anybody know? Henry VIII is correct. Uh, he is the son of Henry VII. Very good. I, I pre you guys are history buffs. Awesome. I remember in, um, um, hist in world history and uh, Doug's brother was my best friend and he wasn't paying any attention at all and uh, the the teacher stopped and said, um, so who is Philip II's son of Macedonia? And Mike said, Philip III? He's like, no. <laughs> Which is just funny because it was the most common sense. And he's like, Alexander the Great. <laughs> like, uh, Mike, that was fun. Anyways, so Henry VII um, was dad at the time. And um, there was a lot of political maneuvering that had to happen in every single decision that was made. So England was, as they always were, at war with France at the time. Um, France was a pretty major power. France was also at odds with Spain, which was really helpful for England because England then had an ally in Spain. And the deal was that Spain was really well connected at this time with the Holy Roman Empire. And it was connected with the Holy Roman Empire primarily because Charles, who was the Holy Roman Emperor, was the great-grand-nephew of um, 
great-nephew, not grand-nephew, great-nephew of Ferdinand and Isabella, okay? And so what Henry saw was an opportunity to align himself with Spain, the Holy Roman Empire, and the Pope all in one fell swoop. And so he went to Ferdinand and Isabella and said, your daughter is available for marriage. My son would be willing to take her on as a bride. And so Catherine of Aragorn was married to um, uh, Arthur. Um, and so uh, Catherine was only 15 years old at the time, um, but that came not only with the alliance with Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, but it also came with a good deal of dowry, uh, which was still being offered at the time. And so Arthur and Catherine were married. The problem is Arthur died four months later. Okay? And this is a real problem for Catherine because Catherine now has been married and her husband's died. Being a widower is not the best situation in the world, uh, even if you're a princess. And so um, Henry VII was also in a bit of a pickle because he didn't want to have to give the dowry back, which was substantial, and he certainly didn't want to lose the connection that he had with Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. So he said, here's what we'll do. We will just let him marry my other son, Henry, okay, who would eventually become Henry VIII. So Henry marries Catherine. The problem with all of this is there was a very strict and very clear law, we, we would call it canon law, church law. There was a law that said, you cannot marry your brother's wife, okay? And it was very clear, and there was no if ands, or buts about it. Like, uh, this was something that, that the canons laid out that said you cannot do. Now, you can ask for a special dispensation from the Pope, okay? And the Pope can overrule canon law in order to allow these sorts of marriages to happen. So what Henry VII does is look at the Pope and say, hey, can you, can you handle this for me? Can you, can you make this sort of provision go away? And the Pope looked at Charles, and he looked at Ferdinand and Isabella, and they all went, Mm-hmm, you can do that. And he said, sure, I'll do that. Because the Pope at this time did not have a great deal of power. He was really under the thumb of Charles, and he didn't want to upset Charles. He certainly didn't want to upset Ferdinand and Isabella. And so he didn't really care about England, but he, he didn't want to upset those apple carts. And so he said, sure, you can marry her off. Well, Henry and Catherine, um, to put it loosely, uh, didn't get along very well. Um, to be fair to Henry, Henry thought it wrong from the very get-go that he would marry her. Not because he, was, he, he thought she was gross or anything like that. He, he honestly felt icky about marrying his brother's wife from the very beginning. And so everything that happens after this, he will take political advantage of that. But it seems as though from the very beginning, he, he just felt weird about it. Now, this was only aided by the fact that Catherine was unable to, after years and years of marriage, give him a male heir. Okay? So it wasn't a couple generations ago that there was uh, issues within England about who was going to take over the throne because there was not a clear line of descent. And so for Henry VIII, um, which is who young Henry would become, it was very, very important that he get a male heir so that he can, you know, have a clear line of passage for the, the throne to be going on to. Um, Catherine couldn't give him a male child, and he already felt bad about it. He wanted to move on. Um, it seems as though this happens well before he falls in love with another lady, um, or at least the lady that he would leave Catherine for. Um, 
Mary Tudor was born to Catherine, but uh, no other children and no male heir. Um, Henry did, however, have an illegitimate son um, who he made the Duke of Richmond. Um, and some, some very classy uh, churchmen said, why don't you just marry your illegitimate son to marry um, your, his half-sister? <laughs> and, and he... Henry kind of looked at him and said, I don't think that's going to solve my problem because that's, that child's already illegitimate. He's already illegitimate, right? And so he said, no, and they're half-sisters. Like, he felt icky about marrying his brother's sister, and now people are asking him to marry his two children together. And so he was, he was quite clearly, I don't, I don't think we're going to go down that path. So um, eventually, Henry just looks at the Pope and says, listen, this thing should be annulled, right? And... Um, the Pope could annul marriages uh, well after they were consummated, and he had done so many times. Um, but he couldn't do this without completely and utterly humiliating Catherine, um, who had had a child by Henry. Um, it would make her, um, it would make their their marriage and therefore their union illegitimate, and um, and this would be an incredibly humiliating and embarrassing thing for Catherine. Um, her nephew Charles who loved her very, very much, uh, was not going to stand for this either. And so the Pope very quickly um, sat on it. He just didn't respond. And he hoped that it would just kind of go away. But it never actually went away. And so eventually he had to say, no, I'm not going to, to do this. Um, and again, there, there were suggestions that, um, that people in the church brought forward to Henry about how he was supposed to handle this. Uh, they said, why don't you just take on a secret second wife? Um, and again, Henry said, I'm not sure how that helps me. I need a legitimate heir, and taking on a secret mistress in order to get the heir isn't going to help me, especially when I already have an illegitimate son who can't become king. And so there, there's just nothing, there's, you know, again, you, you wonder why church people, you wonder why people thought the Roman Catholic Church was kind of illegitimate at this time. These are many, many, many of the reasons why. Like they are, they're saying, just take you know, just take a second secret wife, marry her in secret, and then having a male heir through her. And, and again, he's saying, no, this isn't, this isn't the problem. So um, a lot of his, his advisors said, well, let's, let's turn to the universities and see what the universities have to say if the, if the Pope is right about how he reads the law. And um, so they turned to the universities, you know, Paris, Orléans, Toulouse, uh, Cambridge, even some Italian universities, and they all came back and said, yeah, that initial marriage should never have happened. According to canon law, that is all kinds of wrong. Um, and so this bolstered Henry, and Henry said, okay, well, it's, it's time for us to break with Rome, um, and we're going we're gonna to make a clean, clean break from Rome. You need to understand, though, Henry wanted a break from Rome solely for political reasons. He didn't want to be under the authority of Rome, and this was clearly an area of Henry's life. And the more you read of Henry, the more you realize that this was not a man who, who took things passively. There are kings throughout the, the history of the world who are very passive. Henry was not that. Henry's the kind of guy who got like two hours of sleep and woke up like a pit bull wanting to take on everything before him in the day. And this was one thing that he couldn't control and it kind of drove him nuts. And so he, he wanted control of it. He didn't want to be under the Pope's authority. However, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with Protestantism. 
Um, when Luther uh, was kind of shaking up the world, um, Henry had written a, a paper in defense of Roman Catholicism, uh, one that the Pope liked so much that the Pope kind of christened him the defender of the faith. Uh, this was one of the reasons why. And so um, while Henry wanted to kind of break with Rome, it wasn't to side with Protestantism. It was just so that he could be authoritative all on his own. And this is what I mean by theology wasn't driving the initial Reformation in England. It was solely Henry trying to have England be authoritative outside of any sort of outside influence. Um, so they put old laws that forbid appealing to Rome in place. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and uh, he appointed Thomas Cranmer, uh, somebody who we're going to come back to as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, and then finally in 1534, a parliament got together with Henry as he kind of forced the issue. Um, and they came up with a series of laws that, that broke England from under Rome completely and utterly. Um, in 1534, they decided that absolutely no contributions were ever to be taken out of England and gone to Rome, especially to papal authority, um, that the marriage to Catherine was indeed illegitimate. It was not a, a good marriage. Um, they declared it to be illegitimate. Um, Henry was now declared to be uh, the supreme head of the Church of England, um, and, uh, and basically he is pope over England is what that means. Um, so he, he's, he's looking at the Pope and saying, no, I'm, I'm Pope. Um, and then they did one better. They said that anyone who declares that Henry is simply a schismatic or that he is a heretic because of this is guilty of treason, which is just the best epitome of how church and state mixed at that time right? So to say that somebody is a heretic means that you are treasonous. And it shows that, that for the, the, a number of people through the Reformation, with the exception of the Anabaptists, these things were just combined. So Luther, again, had this sort of two-kingdom idea, but almost everyone else saw the, the church and the state sort of as, as different columns in the same entity, like, they, they were not completely separated, but they were somehow woven in to, to one another. This was sort of codified in 1534. Uh, famously, um, Thomas More, um, who ends up being uh, sainted later, um, would not go along with this particular program. Thomas is an interesting figure. Um, he's really clear in his thought and... Um, obviously a man of great conviction, um, he simply wouldn't relent. And so they threw him in prison. They said, we will execute you. We're going to put you on trial. We'll execute you. If you don't give this up, you need to say that Henry is the supreme head of the Church of England. And Thomas was a convinced Roman Catholic, and he said, I simply won't do that. And so <clears throat> um, he, he does do this one funny thing. When put on trial, um, he does this weird bit of legal convolution where he says, um, I never said that Henry wasn't the supreme head of the Church of England. I just never said that he was. Um, which, is an, which you can tell that Moore is a lawyer, uh, first and foremost. Like He's saying, I, I didn't deny it. I just didn't affirm it. And the, <laughs> Henry, Henry in the court looked at him and said, Nah, that doesn't work. And so, um, although he is an incredibly um, convic 
a man of conviction, a man of very clear thought, um, Thomas More was, was killed um, because he refused to admit, admit or to acknowledge that Henry was the, the rightful uh, supreme head of the Church of England. Um, so Catherine is now gone. She's illegitimate. Um, can anyone name the next five wives of Henry? Who's the next one? Anne Boleyn is the next one, whom before he had divorced Catherine was clearly in love with, um, and he turns and marries Anne Boleyn. Um, Anne Boleyn gives him a daughter. Anyone know what the daughter's name is? She's famous because she's queen. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. So she gives birth to Liz, but not to a male heir. So Henry is still stuck without a male heir. He's got two... uh, Girls who couldn't be more different, as we are going to find out, um, but he, he doesn't have a male heir yet. Um, Anne Boleyn is then, what happens to Anne Boleyn? Anybody? Wow, you guys know. Off with her head. So, uh, does anybody know why? Yes. That is, that's basically what it was. She was accused of adultery, uh, pretty much without proof. Uh, she was accused of adultery, and yeah, her, her head came off. Um, after Anne Boleyn, he married, no, I don't believe it was her sister, Seymour, yes, uh, Jane Seymour, and Jane Seymour gave him a male heir, what's that? Wow, I guess I got to go back and watch some more bad 90s television, I guess, to get the, the references here. Um, that's hilarious. <coughs> um, yeah, so he married the actress. Uh, he was very old when he did so. Um, but Jane gave him his male heir. Edward VI came from that. Um, eventually, though, Jane, she does die, not by Henry's hand, but by God's hand. Uh, she dies, and so he marries... This is not, now we're in the, the weeds, because those are names you might know. Anne of Cleves. Um, Anne of Cleves. Uh, and again, to show you Henry's political maneuvering, he marries Anne of Cleves because now, after divorcing Catherine and going through the, the other rigmarole, he is now at odds with Spain, France, and the Holy Roman Empire. And so he needs to make allies. And so Anne of Cleves is the daughter of important Lutheran leaders, okay? So not, not that they're theologians, I'm not, they're not theologians, but they are heads over cantons in, in German provinces, um, and so he marries her in order to appease them. Um, he, he was threatened by both Charles V and France because of this in the end, um, he divorces her, although he doesn't kill her, um, but he does kill somebody associated with it, the man who put them in touch with one another. So he wanted to marry her, and the man said, hey, there's this girl named Anne of Cleves, you should marry her, it'll make an alliance. He divorces her, and he looks at him, and he says, you die. So that guy got his head cut off. Um, you know, isn't, isn't, this, is, this isn't happening that long ago, right? He's like, all I did was introduce you to, and he's like, no, you're, you're done Okay, so Anne of Cleves is gone. Then Catherine Howard, 
he marries, which bounces back the other direction. Um, she is very, very conservative, meaning not conservative in the way we talk, but in conservative in the way they would talk then, meaning she was Roman Catholic. Um, she did her best um, to um, make England as Roman Catholic as possible, only minus any connection to the Pope. Um, the monasteries, which um, had not been put back into place, um, <clears throat> um, they were, uh, because of her, kept, uh, Henry basically kept that property for himself. Um, short of, of putting the monasteries back, she, she kept as many of the priests and in, in employees as she possibly could, basically just stoking the fires of Roman Catholicism without Rome. Um, but eventually she was also beheaded, and the last one he married was Catherine Parr, who was Protestant. So he went from a Lutheran, so went from a Lutheran princess to a committed Roman Catholic back to a Lutheran, basically. Um, and she was probably more Reformed than any of them. Um, she supported the Reformation um, and outlived Henry. Uh, she was the one who did so. I don't know if she, you know, said I made it. Um, she would probably make fun of the rest of them, but the rest of them were all dead. So, um, she, she outlives him. Henry dies in 1547. One of the most important things that Henry does um, is install Thomas Cranmer as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And we will be talking about him <clears throat> in a couple of minutes when we get to Mary Tudor. Uh, Cranmer is a true sort of Protestant, right? And so what he is going to do is he is going to do the best he can to ride this political wave to bring in Protestantism around the back and forth. So again, with every wife that, that Henry's picking up, and you can tell Henry's a pretty volatile guy, um, the, the mood in the country is swinging back and forth with him, and Cranmer's trying to read the tea leaves. He's trying to do the best he can to, to push stuff forward. Archbishop in a very, very difficult situation. Um, eventually, he does a lot of Protestant type of stuff, um, he gets English Bibles into English churches. So he gets rid of the Latin uh, mass and he, he provides English Bibles for them. Um, some of these, and, and you can feel the um, uh, impact of his decision to do that because of the way we still in American churches even deal with the Lord's Prayer. So some of us say, forgive us for our, and others say, forgive us for our, that is because when Cranmer instituted the Bible to go into English churches, there were two primary Bibles that you could pick from, one that was translated by Tyndall and one that was translated by Cloverdale. Cloverdale used the word debts. Tyndale used the word trespasses. And so even in English churches today, we have these two different translation histories that come down to us because Cranmer didn't pick one Bible and force everybody to use it, okay? Which I thought was kind of an interesting thing. Um, when Henry confiscated the monasteries, the, the sort of um, places where a lot of the conservative Roman Catholics would have dwelled, when, when he confiscated those, Cranmer was very, very able then because a lot of those were at times thrust out of the country, made to go to other Roman Catholic locations. Um, this made Cranmer's ability to install theologically Protestant ideas much, much more simple. They, they didn't have the sort of theological knowledge of the people who were left in England to fight him on it. Um, so Cranmer starts to make headway. At this point in time, Edward VI 
takes over, um, and the reform uh, finally starts chugging ahead. So Edward is much more stable, and uh, because he is much more stable, um, it allows Cranmer to really start making some headway. Communion in both kinds is reinstalled for the laity, so again, um, remember that at this point in time, the Roman Catholic Church is still only giving communion in one kind to their people. That is, they are only allowed to take the bread. They are not allowed to take the wine. I don't know when that was instituted, but this is common, and this is one of the first things that Protestants did when it came to the Mass and the Lord's Supper. They abolished the Mass, and the Lord's Supper was almost when Protestants got a hold of it, it was given in both kinds to everyone. Um, so this happens in the Church of England. Um, the uh, clerical marriage is now allowed, so if you're a priest, you can now take on a wife, um, which is something that, that's going to come up again. Um, images, Roman Catholic images, images of the saints, images of Jesus are removed from the churches, and the Book of Common Prayer is instituted. So if you've never gotten your hands on the Book of Common Prayer and looked through it, it's good. Um, so it's not all good, right? There, there are pieces of, of bad stuff in there, but it is super helpful. Um, and the Book of Common Prayer was um, helped on by Cranmer and others. Um, it is an incredibly insightful book, and basically what it did was it provided a liturgy for the Church of England, okay? So that liturgy was, how are we supposed to have our services? What are they supposed to look like? What are we supposed to say? Again, these are people who, um, and, and we are not as, so I don't think I've introduced this concept, but here there's a, a helpful concept in the way people talk about um, high churches and low churches, okay? So Baptist churches tend to be incredibly low churches, and what we mean by that is there's a low level of structure is kind of the best way to understand. I don't know that that's why high and low got used originally, but it, it kind of follows this pattern. Um, low churches have low levels worth of structure. So we are not quite a low church. You'll, you'll know that we have a pretty set liturgy on how we do things. We have, um, you know, prayer. Uh, we have opening scripture reading, which we all do together, responsive reading, and then we, we go to prayer of adoration, and all of it follows us, that pattern. We do this every single week. It's not exactly the same, but it's, it's, it's close. Same, same themes, anyway. Um, lower churches than us, there are churches that, that play this by ear. Like the minister is making this up as he goes along. Like, what should we do now? I guess we'll, we'll pray now, right? And so those are the, like the lowest of the low churches. And I don't, low doesn't mean, it's not a pejorative thing. It just means there's almost no set structure to what they do. They're going to have a sermon at some point in time. They're probably going to pray. There's probably going to be some songs. We don't know exactly how that's all going to fit together. We'll kind of, we'll figure it out as we go, okay? High churches not only have structure in place, but they have such structure in place that they know the words they're going to say on a specific day months in advance, okay? Because Roman Catholic Church, the highest of high churches, um, they might have different homilies, but the Lord's Supper, uh, Mass, is spoken the same way every time. There's sort of a set pattern, a set ritual to what they're doing. Those are high churches. Um, the the Book of Common Prayer was incredibly important because the people at that time knew nothing about low church. Church as ritual was church. There wasn't, there wasn't this um, 
whether you want to call it freedom or whether you want to call it lack of structure, however you want to phrase it, there wasn't any of that. And so if you were going to get away from the Mass and away from Roman Catholic practices, the only way you could really do that was to install something else in its place. They, they needed to have some sort of structure. And that's what the, the Book of Common Prayer does for, for the English church. Um, and you can tell the kind of direction that they're starting to move in. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer goes through edits as, it, as we, we go through the years, and um, they start to move more and more in sort of a reformed direction, okay? So the very first time it was written, uh, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it says this, uh, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. Preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. Um, that does not sound very Zwinglian. So Zwingli takes a, a real memorial view of the Lord's Supper. It's not that the Lord's not present there, but the Lord's Supper itself is just a remembrance. It's just memorial. This is saying, um, this, is, this is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ given for you. It has a, a much more sacramental um, understanding to it, and it's saying, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. That's, that's very... Um, Lutheran, if not even kind of further toward Roman Catholicism than, than Luther was. However, the next go-round, uh, a couple of years later when they redid it, uh, that same phrase was written this way, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. Well, that is removing the, the presence of Christ from the, the Eucharist about as firmly as you can without just flat out saying, Jesus Christ is not this cracker and Jesus Christ is not this wine. Um, and so they're clearly moving more toward Zwingli in what they're going to believe. Um, Edward, uh, all of this happened under Edward. It, it doesn't seem like Edward opposed this, although we, we don't want to give him too much credit for doing these things. Uh, but nevertheless, Edward doesn't live very long. He's not in good health. He was a sickly child from birth, um, which is interesting because, again, Henry was just an incredibly vigorous guy, um, but he, Edward was a sickly child, and um, he dies six years after becoming king. Now, the question then becomes, who reigns in England after him? And at first, it's turned over to Mary Tudor. Mary Tudor is the daughter of Catherine. Being the daughter of Catherine, she has both religious reasons and political reasons, which meld very nicely together for being Roman Catholic. Why does she have to uphold Roman Catholicism in England? Does anybody want to venture a guess? Politics is interesting. Because if she says that she's Protestant, then it is quite clear that her mom's marriage was illegitimate. If her mom's marriage was illegitimate, she is illegitimate. And if she is illegitimate, she can't be queen. And so, for any of a number of reasons, she has to side with the Pope. She has to. Um, truth be told, she seems to want to anyway. Um, and so, she, she takes over after Edward, and the country then is plunged back in slowly at first, but then pretty severely into Roman Catholicism. Um, she turns back almost everything that Henry and Edward did that was good towards Protestantism. She reaffirms the connection of England with the Pope and turns England back under the Pope. Um, <clears throat> those, those priests 
who took on wives, uh, at some point in time, she issues a declaration saying, give them up. I don't care what you do with them, but you can't have them as wives anymore. Um, so she, she basically just says, they're not your wives anymore, and you can't have them as your wives anymore. Um, how and what that actually looked like on the ground, I don't, I don't know. But um, uh, it, it seems like a really tough thing to, to turn back the, uh, the tide there. Um, and then in the end, finally, uh, Mary, it was, she basically issued an open proclamation on, on hunting season for Protestants. So in her fairly short term, about 300 Protestants were going to be killed under her watch. Uh, this got her the nickname of... Bloody Mary. Um, after her reign, um, this is when Fox started his Book of Martyrs, which was basically just going to be a chronicle of the martyrs that happened during Mary's reign um, and telling some of their stories, which obviously got expanded and, and things like that. Um, the most important of all, <coughs> excuse me, The most important of all of those who were martyred at this time was Thomas Cranmer. Um, Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and so you can't just take an archbishop, especially if you're Roman Catholic, and chop his head off. You've got to go through a little bit of a system. So because he was archbishop, his case was sent down to Rome. Believe it or not, Rome didn't take long in deciding that this guy was a heretic. Um, they burned his effigy and then sent it back to England to deal with him in body. Cranmer is... Um, unwilling to recant, um, Mary brings in two of his best friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, and forces Cranmer to watch them get executed, then says, you need to recant. Um, Cranmer recants. He pens some letter saying, hey, uh, what, I, what I have done is wrong, shouldn't have done it. And they say, okay, thanks for the recantation. Here's what's going to happen. You're still going to die. We're still going to burn you alive. But we're going to give you one last time in front of everybody. This is in front of St. Mary's Church. We're give you one last time to recant publicly, to ask for the Pope's forgiveness, and, and maybe your soul will, will go to heaven. And so everybody kind of gathers for this event. It's a really big event, important. This is the Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the leading Roman Catholic in England at the time. So at least the—he's um, not Roman Catholic. The leading— uh, ecclesiological position in England at the time. And so he says, okay, well, I'll make my recantation. And he gets up, and they're expecting him just to say, oh, I was wrong. Pope, please forgive me. You're so brilliant and good. And Cramer gets up and says, I shouldn't have written that stupid thing. Um, I was wrong to do that. <coughs> ah, excuse me. What he actually says is this. Uh, they were written, that is his confession, was written contrary to the truth which I thought in my heart and written for a fear of death to save my life if it might be. And forasmuch as I have written many things contrary to what I believe in my heart, my hand shall be first punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall first be burned. As for the Pope, I refuse him for Christ's enemy and Antichrist with all his false doctrine. So it's kind of a brilliant scene. He's going to get burned Anyway, they expect him to be like pro-Catholic and Mary's there, everybody's there, like expecting this, this big affirmation, this big victory for them. And he says, nah. And he actually does that. He puts his hand in the fire, literally according, not, and I'm not going to say legend, according to eyewitnesses there, until his hand was black. 
and then they put him on the pyre and then they burn him. Which is basically what happens to me every time I grill, but he was apparently, you know, he, he held it there, which is just amazing. Um, Elizabeth dies, or excuse me, Mary dies. Elizabeth is put in charge, um, who is the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Um, Mary dies in 1558. Elizabeth takes over. Um, she is the mirror image of her half-sister uh, in the fact that she is Protestant, but she has to be Protestant for the same reason that Catherine, or excuse me, for the same reason that Mary had to be Catholic. Um, she's Protestant because if she maintains the connection to the Pope, her mom is illegitimate in their marriage, if her mom has an illegitimate marriage to Henry, then she is illegitimate and she doesn't deserve to be on the throne, which was part of the problem of having Elizabeth there anyway because the Queen of the Scots was right up there in Scotland who was a nice Roman Catholic girl who a lot of people thought should have been queen instead of Elizabeth. Nevertheless, um, the Pope um, reaches out to her and says, listen, to make things okay, here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to call you a legitimate heir and to keep you as queen, but you got to stay Roman Catholic. Elizabeth, to her credit, uh, I think this is funny, doesn't even tell the Pope when she becomes queen. Like, he finds out about it secondhand later. So he makes her this offer saying, basically, if you want to become queen and you want to stay queen, I'll back you on that. And she doesn't even bother to respond to him when she actually gets coronated. Like, no one in England seeks to tell him. And the way he finds out, I believe, is by her pulling her ambassador out of Rome. She calls him home. Um, and the Pope finds out then, oh, you've been queen for a while. And she's like, yeah, I don't care about you at all. Um, Pope never heard of her. So, uh, she, she eventually, what, what Liz wants is a middle ground between Roman Catholicism and the sort of extreme Protestantism that is happening in parts of continental Europe. And so she wants a common liturgy. She wants people to, to be able to go from England to Liverpool or whatever other English cities are. Those are basically the only two English cities I know. And um, uh, to be able to move between these places, to show up at a church and to, to know what's going to be happening there so they, they all have a common liturgy, they're all reading from the same book, but to have that wide enough to allow a lot of flexibility and views. But the one thing she doesn't want is this sort of extreme Protestantism or Roman Catholic belief. And that's basically kind of where the Church of England ends up. Um, so even, even when we, we've talked about the, the Lord's Supper already, by the time that Liz gets into authority, the common book of prayer during her reign is changed one more time, and it reads this way. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. Take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. So in other words, she just says, well, we just cram those two things together and call it a day. Right? So this is, this is the, the whole idea here is that there is a liturgy that is stable wherever you go in England, but the Anglican church, they don't call themselves Anglicans at this time, um, but, but that church is, is meant to be flexible to contain a lot of different views. So that if Luther came, he would, he would quibble over some things, but a Lutheran could be happy here. Somebody who agreed with Lutheran's doctrine anyways could be happy there. And somebody who agreed with Calvin's doctrines could be happy there. Um, eventually, during her reign, the 39 articles are going to be written, um, which is the doctrinal basis for the Church of England. Again, uh, 
if so inclined, worth a read. Um, they are helpful in a number of ways, um, certainly not when it comes to baptism and the, the ordering of the church, but in many other respects, very, very helpful. Um, but this is a time of turmoil as well. Her stance on Roman Catholicism is going to lead to a whole bunch of um, basically underground Roman Catholic churches. Um, priests are going to go around doing secret masses for people. Um, she, she turns into just as, well, not as intensely bloody, but the same number of Roman Catholics die under her watch that died under Mary's watch, or excuse me, the, as Protestants died under Mary's watch. So uh, about 300 Roman Catholics were put to death under Elizabeth's reign as well. Now, she reigned 10 years longer, so it wasn't quite as intense, but she still wasn't, wasn't fooling around with anything. Um, they, they had these not only secret underground Roman Catholic churches, they had sort of secret seminaries where they would make people into priests and things like that, and, um, and there were a lot of conspiracies to end her life. Um, toward the end, um, Roman Catholics kind of just got along with life. Um, they, they, I think, realized that there wasn't going, this, this ball that had been started now, remember, it, it had gone back and forth so many times. I think at the beginning of her reign, there was hope um, that either Mary, Queen of Scots, uh, could, could take over for the Queen of England. Um, maybe they could change her mind on it. Maybe they could kill her. But eventually, they kind of said, okay, this ball's got momentum now. Things are not going to change back to the way they are. And eventually, they, they get to a place where Roman Catholics can kind of live in England, and they can be okay. So they start to affirm, the Roman Catholics who are in England, that they are under the religious authority of the Pope, but they're under the civil authority of the Queen, um, which is a pretty untenable position for a Roman Catholic to take at that time. Um, and, and frankly, given what we've already heard about from the kings and queens of England, probably didn't sit too well um, with a whole bunch of people, but nevertheless, it did provide a, a sort of peace that, that would be marked through uh, a good deal of the English Reformation from that time forward. Um, and it was during her reign that the Puritans first make it on the scene, um, who had this very strong Calvinist doctrine, and they were called Puritans because they were just trying to purify the church. Um, so again, the steps of the Reformation Many of these are theological, but you still have people being put in positions of power because it's a hierarchy type of thing. The hierarchy has just been moved from Rome to London uh, because there's this hierarchy type of thing. Um, you still have people being put in positions of authority and power who don't belong there. Um, it's funny, this is a separate note, and we'll conclude with this. Um, to show you that this is true in the, in, the, um, in the working of the Church of England, a lot of the scientists that would creep up in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries who were English, who did the most to further the understanding of science in the Western world. Do you know what their profession was, what their job was, how they made money? They were vicars. They just didn't do anything but science, right? So they were, they were there to watch out for the spiritual well-being of their people. I think Lord Bacon did this, um, which just fantastic name, good for you. Uh, but there were, there were several other, um, um, if I'm not wrong, Lord Calvin 
was a vicar as well. So they had like spiritual responsibilities over people, but they spent all of their time just doing experiments in the bottom of their, their little houses, um, which was great for science, but bad for the people who they were supposed to be watching over. And so the Puritans knew that these things still needed to be addressed, and that was kind of um, where they were coming from, why they were called Puritans, because they wanted to get back to the sort of pure New Testament faith, um, which we will talk about them in time. So uh, a couple minutes left, English Reformation. Any questions or comments? She may have, yeah. I can't remember. I don't remember that specifically. So does anybody else? No, I didn't. Edward's daughter? No, that she was like cousin. Oh, okay. Okay. <coughs> yeah. yeah, you may, you may. I don't, I don't know. Like, her reign would have been so short that it just, yeah, something like that. It wouldn't have been worth. So I, I don't, I don't know. Good, good question, though. Any other questions or comments? Okay, so let me reaffirm one other thing as we, we go along here. We're calling this church history, but let's again be very clear about what we're doing from this point on out. Um, we've already sort of narrowed things down. We, we at first were talking about literally Christendom, and we have steadily worked towards the Northwest, okay? So we, we worked kind of from Christendom as a whole to Rome to France, uh, up maybe to Germany a little bit, but now we're firmly in England, and we're going to stay firmly in England and to the Americas. There's a lot going on in the world of Christendom at this time, and we're just not going to take time to cover. So there's a couple of things. One, I just want to acknowledge that so that you know we're calling this church history, but it's certainly not a full church history. This is a church history. It's kind of like our church history. So we are just tracking the history that, that sort of directly impacts our church and impacts the way that we have, have done things. Um, but there's a thriving church in Africa at this time. There, there are still um, believers who are there. Um, the church in, in France and in Spain um, will, will have ups and downs during this time as well. We're just, we're not going to talk much about that. So there, there are things going on in other places of the world. Don't think that all of Christendom and all of Protestantism was turning toward England, and they were like, oh, England, that's the place of Protestantism. That wasn't the case, okay? Uh, it's just the way that we tend to think about things, because that's our history, as people do. So um, lots of stuff going on in Christendom that we're just not going to talk about, we're primarily just talking about England, and then pretty soon talking about America. So, um, all right, well, let's pray, and ask for God's blessing on our worship service. Father, we are, um, we are thankful to be gathered here. Oh, we're thankful for um, the work of people like Thomas Cranmer, um, the goodness that, uh, that his confession does, um, that it emboldens people to um, not recant on that which they know is true. Um, we're thankful, Father, that he stood for what was right in the end. Um, we're grateful for many, many people who gave their lives, um, whether that was giving their, their lives to the study and the proclamation of your word during that time, or, or literally whether their lives were taken from them to uphold that which is right and good. Um, 
we are thankful for that because we stand to be the inheritors of that tradition and, and much of the, the good that they have done um, was never seen by them, um, but it is only felt by us today. So um, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the work of the Spirit among the churches uh, in England. And we continue to pray for our Anglican brothers and sisters. We ought to, um, knowing that they are truly, um, many of them, brothers and sisters in the Lord um, who love you and cherish you, um, who speak well of Jesus Christ, who know him as he has resurrected them in their hearts and given them new life. Um, we pray for the reformation of that church just as we would ours, that your spirit would work hard within those churches um, to convict them of the truth and to show them what is right and good and true. Uh, in all things, Father, we pray that your people would be led by your spirit for your glory and for their good. In Jesus' name, amen.